about monogamy. The fact is, shortly after we were married, before she became pregnant with Ben, I fell in love with someone else. It happened during annual recurrent training in Oklahoma City. Now, any day that doesn't reach triple digits there is considered chilly. We'd finish class by three, and the sun was still broiling at four when I'd take a swim at the day's in. It was so hot, you didn't need a towel. You stepped off the ladder, and nature blow-dried you. One afternoon, I climbed out of the pool and found myself on a plastic lounge chair next to a classmate, a fellow controller I'd smiled at during the morning donut scrum. The most dangerous location in North America? Standing between air traffic controllers and free Krispy Kremes. She had long blonde hair and her blue and red swimsuit. Talk about your primary colors. I quickly wished I did have a towel. Megan worked up in Providence, which I straightaway concluded was good. Not too far, but definitely not too close. We started talking poolside, goofing on the meteorology consultant who became tumescent when lecturing us on the airborne hazards of radiation fog versus advection fog. Pretty soon it was dinner time, so we took my rented Dodge Caliber to Applebee's. Oak City, like most places in these United States, is all about restaurants advertising on national television. So it's the same menus with the same mozzarella sticks and the same bottomless Cokes and the same death by chocolate. While we waited, they handed one of us one of those flying saucer-shaped things that lit up and buzzed and flashed red when it was time to be seated, and we tossed it back and forth like it was radioactive. After we ordered, we imagined a maniacal employee recklessly combining dishes in the kitchen. Coleslaw soup, buffalo sushi, deep-fried jello, zucchini pudding, roasted garlic mashed brownies, bacon and ketchup juice, salsa ice cream. She was a hell of an attractive woman, but what I remember most was her laugh. Jesus, what a sexy laugh. And laughing was about all we did in the following days, sitting in the back and giggling at the guest instructors from Lockheed Martin and MIT as they yapped about upgrading to next-generation air transportation system, texting each other from four feet away. Next gen? We didn't even get last gen. It's lucky we didn't earn detention or get sent home with demerits. On the penultimate night, we took her rented Pontiac Vibe to Outback and stayed until the waitresses were counting their tips at the table next to us. When we got back to the Days Inn, I walked Megan to her room, one floor above mine. She smiled and asked if I wanted to come in. And there I was, literally on the threshold. My father had stood in a thousand portals during his career, smelling the smoke and feeling the heat through the door on the palms of his hands and wondering whether to swing an axe or retreat, fight or flight. I smiled and went back to my room where I got damn little sleep that night. But let me clarify, I'm not looking for extra points because I was the only one in my marriage who didn't color outside the lines. In fact, I still look back at that Oak City trip as the time I cheated. I didn't so much as hold Megan's hand that week, 
and when we caught our respective connecting flights in Dallas, we lightly hugged and rubbed noses like Eskimos, each afraid to deploy lips. But the way I laughed at what she said, the way I watched her peripherally in class, the way we shared the same apple caramel dessert thingy at Bennigan's with the very same spoon, all that felt like cheating. Megan made me feel alive in a way I'd never felt in my marriage, even on its very best days. She made me feel interesting and engaging and funny and attractive, which I didn't even realize I wasn't feeling. And I loved making her feel interesting and engaging and funny and attractive because she allowed me that and even encouraged it. But when I walked that extra flight to her motel door, I felt like I cheated. Even so, I'm not proposing fidelity is the finest of virtues. In fact, I'm not even sure human beings are meant to be monogamous. What we don't know about our own species dwarfs what we think we know. But when I wake in the morning and my frontal lobe slowly drums its daily reminder, marriage over, marriage over, my first thought isn't about her possible infidelities. It's my slow realization about how miserably unhappy I was in that marriage, even though I would never have left. Another quiet Sunday morning. Once again, I'm with Mo, who's reading a thick book by David Foster Wallace that isn't infinite jest. He looks up. Anything I can do? My response is immediate. Yes. I hear words tumbling forth as if someone else is speaking. I think my wife, ex-wife, she's having an affair. Maybe long-term. Maybe multiple affairs. I don't know. She's got a boyfriend in Israel. Hmm. She says she's got a job offer there. It's bullshit. It's a boyfriend. And she wants to bring Ben there. She keeps saying over and over, short term. Just a visit. Just for a while. I think she wants to take Ben there. I mean, like, one way. Mo leans in. What can I do? Elliot. Still with El Al? He nods. You know, every landing, uh, always late. I pause, certain he knows. I need a PNR, Mo. He expels air. It's quite illegal these days for airline employees to share information electronically stored in passenger name records. PNR. Even before the 9-11 insanity turned airlines into the Gestapo, it already violated privacy laws. At an absolute minimum, his partner Elliot could lose his job in reservations at LL. Okay. I lower my voice. You sure? Yep. I've contemplated this for days while even denying it. July or August, I say quickly, as if Mo might reconsider. Most likely Tel Aviv. Probably nonstop. Kennedy. Newark. 
Forget her. Don't bother with Cohen. Just check Mullen. That's Ben's passport. Okay. He scoots back to his workspace and pecks at his laptop. As an excuse to expend nervous energy, I take a break and slot out Hostess Pies and Nestle Quick. I ingest all this sugar and dub it breakfast. When I return, there's a slip of paper face down on my chair. I read as Mo nods grimly. It's a printout of Elliot's email. Jesus H. Christ. My eyes zip past airline jargon, fare codes, billing data, extraneous crap, focusing on the simple chilling facts. Passenger. Cohen Mullen, comma, B, minor. L-Y-829, July 14th. JFK, TLV, nonstop, 10 hours, 30 minutes. Nonstop to Tel Aviv, departing in July. What's more, Cohen is Ben's middle name. There's no hyphen before Mullen. Sirens wail in my head, but I hear Moe's voice. No. What? I somehow hope the letters and numbers realign. You were right about the other thing. I look up. What other thing? It's a one-way ticket. It's a summer filled with bile. Up in the tower, old-timers like to quote an ancient air traffic control maxim that sometimes when we're dealing with an ignorant or difficult or English-challenged crew member, we engage in wishful hearing. We tell ourselves they comprehend us, even though they've provided no verification that our message was, one, sent, two, received, three, understood, and four, remembered. But we pretend that we have communicated, despite no evidence to support all four suppositions. This summer, I'm forever filled with bile that won't recede, and a sickness that won't abate. I can say it now. Now I can say that I've known for years that she is duplicitous, untruthful, deceitful. Unfaithful? Known it. Known? Not really. Not known it. But yes, known it. The way we know the deepest truths in life, truths that don't require evidence or photographs or affidavits, the truths we feel through our skin, I engaged in wishful hearing, wishful seeing, wishful wishing. Her lies were so thin that on some level she was challenging me to challenge her. Yet I'd see Ben smearing his forehead with applesauce in his high chair, and I'd know that addressing this would mean the three of us would never again share an eat-in kitchen. So I bore down into wishfulness. Of course, we're not in that eat-in kitchen anyway, which only increases the bile. At the time, I refused to input such damning evidence. After all our promises, plans, dreams, she couldn't. She could not. She could. So I wishfully heard and wishfully saw and wishfully imagined Ben in his high chair 
stained with mutts, and pretended not to hear and see and think and feel. That's why it's a sickening summer, bilious and dizzying at once. Finally, I got tech-savvy and found the password for her email account. What I found wasn't pretty, and I stopped reading early on. Then I clicked the About sections on some of her LinkedIn connections and began making my own connections. What I don't know and would be shocked to learn is that the bile will go away, but it will leave a mark, despite what the professionals and the books all repeat as a mantra. The bile is a poison that I'll have to live with for the rest of my years. Betrayal has an infinite shelf life. And, like a cockroach, it can survive an apocalypse. Hillary has called about 15 times in two days. She's apoplectic. A subpoena must be served immediately. Even she realizes that mediation has run its course. Judge Westfall is on vacation, and apparently half the judicial branch of Queens County is in the Hamptons or some other place. Hillary's worried if the window passes and Ben gets on that flight to Israel, it will be all over. My attorneys argue over logistics. They won't employ a process server, apparently because too many are numbnuts and, and could screw this up, and will never get a second chance if it goes sour. Hillary insists I use someone who knows her well, preferably one of my blood relatives. I've learned there are dozens of rules to this serving game. It can't be done by me, or by a lawyer, or on a Sunday, etc. I've roped Tommy into this mission. I'm not happy about it, but it's got to be done. Last night I told her she could pick up Ben at the Georgia Diner in Elmhurst at 10. Then I rehearsed Tommy multiple times, just as Hillary rehearsed me. We got there at 9.15 and parked my car up front and tucked his Chevy Tahoe way in the back, the better to downplay its Moltark construction signage. I'm springing for breakfast, but he's no hungrier than I am. My wrist will fall off if I keep angling it to look at my watch. I don't know how millennials live without them. Watches, not wrists. We're sitting in a window booth perpendicular to Queens Boulevard, with a clear view of the steps leading to the vestibule. I've parted the tall vertical blinds, so I've got a clear sniper's view of the entrance. There's no way she'll get past me. Tommy theatrically sighs. Jesus, Mikey. Clemenza, in the Georgia diner. No. Leave the subpoena. Take the Linzer torts. I nod nervously. Either that or learn Hebrew. I can't read backwards at my age. My brother chomps on wheat toast and stirs his coffee. He's silently letting me know he's aware of the stakes. It strikes me I haven't been alone with my oldest brother in quite some time. In fact, a very long time. He's not a guy to fuck with. Not after years of carrying pipe and swinging sledgehammers. High on his impressive left bicep, is the Semper Fi tattoo he got near Lejeune. But even in a tight work shirt, you can't see it. He wears a goatee and a small earring and heavy work boots 
seven days a week. He's a man, but he's never been a dick. Somehow, he carved out a piece of the world for himself and quietly jettisoned any ugliness he breathed on 116th Street in Rockaway and in Catholic schools and on Paris Island. He simply rejected much of life's bullshit. He met his business partner, Terry Tarkington, at a union meeting when they were laid off after the first Bush recession. Together, Irish-American and African-American, they've built Moltark Construction and nice lives for about 45 employees and their many dependents. Once a year, Tommy and Rosemary join Terry and his wife, Joe to take all four of their kids on a Disney cruise. Or they drive to the Outer Banks. Or they fly to Bermuda. Tommy even asked my father to stop referring to Terry as colored, as the old man did. But then, Tommy was always his favorite. Not because he's the oldest, or because of the Marines, or even because of his name. Tommy is the one who least seeks my father's approval. So naturally, he gets it. Tommy and Terry don't use off-the-books labor, and they provide decent health benefits their accountant warned them dips into their own executive compensation fund. Both have Obama stickers on their matching company-owned Chevy Tahoes, and Tommy's got a nice home in Douglaston he built himself. They charge customers more, but they market themselves as artisans. Quality costs, as Katie's voiceover narration on the company homepage conveys. Last year, Rosemary told us Tommy donated a four-figure personal check to AIDS Walk New York after his favorite admin died. And Tommy and Rosemary have twin daughters. Ever since Liz and Kelly were born, I've watched him rock them to sleep and help them decide what color shoes to wear and listen along to their Miley Cyrus and Taylor Swift tapes. He and Rosemary have instilled in them that they're strong and smart and beautiful and capable. In short, he's been an outstanding role model. But somehow, I didn't realize it until this summer. What I don't know is, of all the relationships that will see me through the next two years, my bond with Tommy will strengthen the most. I launch a discussion I've backburnered. Let me ask you, he says nothing. The last few years, I mean, up until she left, you've been a little, I don't know, distant. He snorts out a laugh. Wow. Wow? Yeah. Wow. You're a piece of work. I shake my head. I don't get it. I'm freaking distant? I am? Well, not now, but before, during my marriage. Tommy stirs. You need a new history book there, pal. Meaning what? You. You're the one, my friend. You practically told us all to go fuck ourselves after you met her. You worked yourself up. Everybody wasn't going to like her. Nobody didn't like her, but you worked yourself up anyway. Well, I don't know. She was different. You were a little hard on Eileen there for a while, no? What do you mean? 
Look, Mikey, so you want to marry a Jewish girl. I mean, all due respect, big whoop, you know. For Christ's sake, it's 2000 and something. You make such a big stand about it. Sure, maybe Tom would be an asshole. What else is new? You could marry Maureen O'Hara and he'd say something stupid, but not the rest of us. Telling Eileen to shove the church, all of that, nobody said anything. You were the one who brought it up. Nobody really gave that much of a shit, to be honest. Not even Eileen. I mean, what's it to us if you marry a freaking Hindu? For Christ's sake, you act like it was Fiddler on the fucking roof, like Eileen was going to disown you. I have no son named Michael. He shakes his head. You never even gave Eileen a chance. What the hell? Eileen treated that girl golden from day one. She was trying to learn how to cook kosher freaking meatloaf. But you had your panties all up in a twist. I have nothing to say. He's right. Absolutely right. Okay. I say finally. Tommy nods. Okay. So don't be a douchebag. Everybody's on your side. Always have been. He sips more coffee. It's nervousness, not caffeine, and then leans in. I'm going to give you some free advice, Mike. You take shit way too personally. All kinds of shit. Way too personally. you got to learn how to focus on people you want to be with. Screw the jerks. Screw them. I made eye contact, then dropped my gaze. Wow. I didn't know ex-Marines could be so insightful. Or count to ten. Or grip a spoon. Whoa, funny guy. Tommy smiles, holding up the thick envelope with Hillary's seal. You going to ask the waitress to do this? I meant, thank you. You bet your sweet ass. I checked my watch. 9.50. Let's do it. What are you going to say? My brother shakes his head. I'm going to say, hey, you look great. New hair? Lose weight? I love those shoes. Cut the shit. Fine. I'm going to say, I have, no, I can't hide my impatience. You've got to say her name first. You've got to. Fine. Tommy slurps at his coffee. I'll say her name. Then I'll say, I have some papers for you. You've been served. I nod. And what if she wants to argue? Call your names. Tommy shrugs. She'll be talking to dead space. Once this is in her hands, I'm out of there. Unless she's going to lay down on my hood, I'll be pulling away on two wheels. I expel my breath. My eyes are on Queens Boulevard, the subway side. Here she comes, I say quietly. All in one move, Tommy chugs down a last swig, grabs his thick ring of kings and the envelope, nods grimly at me, and scoots out. I slump down as if waiting for Sonny to enter the toll plaza. Goddamn Tommy for bringing up the Corleones. My line of vision is perfect. I wait, 
and wait. Then, her right foot is on the top step when I see the glass door open, and now Tommy is facing her. I'm not close enough to read lips, but then I don't have to, since pantomime tells the tale. I see her hands reflexively come up for the envelope. I see him nod grimly and trot off. I see her tear open the seal. Tommy's Tahoe quickly shoots out of the parking lot, not quite on two wheels, but the suspension creaks when he takes the hard right towards Queens Boulevard and blows through the yellow light across four lanes of traffic. In the distance, a horn blares. My phone rings. I knock a juice tumbler as Tommy speaks. She says there's a lot I don't know about my baby bro. Everybody thinks she's not nice, but you're not so nice either. What did you say? Try the veal. It's the best in the city. My chest constricts. I love you, man. Yeah, yeah, forget it. We'll talk later. And he's gone. Hillary advised I didn't even need to come. In fact, she argued against it. But I'm here. Not because I doubted Tommy's competency. The guy has 45 people working for him. I came for the woman who's leaning against the handicapped ramp and rifling through papers. Believe it or not, despite all that's happened, I think it's the right thing. I may very well be unhinged, but I'm concerned that she understands. Now I throw down the tip, quickly hand cash to the Greek-speaking woman up front, and within two minutes push open the same door. She's still reading and doesn't even see me. I'm close enough to be struck. You have any questions? She looks up, staring at me with venom I never saw before. Those same eyes that looked at me so differently? How is it possible? Who knew this pendulum had such reach? Was it always like this? You're a real son of a bitch, you know that? I nod, and instantly it's as if I'm guiding an aircraft with engine failure. Hillary's voice echoes, and it's all instinct. And adrenaline. I'll see you. All instinct and adrenaline. She's cursing at my back now, and I walk toward my car as she hurls four words we both know have less potential to see her since our eyes no longer meet. I can see the station wagon. She recedes. Further than ever, she recedes. We're snuggled in for the night, nowhere to go and nothing to do. I need several waking hours of not thinking about subpoenas. Kevin is in Sag Harbor, and I've got the best of both worlds. First, time with Ben until he conks out. Then, time with myself. Specifically, a phone on airplane mode and a fresh bag of Pepperidge Farms as I stream in the right stuff. It won't be the same without a big screen, but it'll do. Jesus, curled up with cookies. I'm more effeminate hourly. It's a Berenstain Bears evening, and tonight we're reading a favorite, Trouble at School. After Grizzly Gramps uses cookies to teach Brother Bear about division, I think about my stash of Nantuckets up in the cabinet Ben doesn't know about yet. Then he asks what division is. A fair question. He rests against my chest 
and it takes a while, but I decently explain how numbers are divided and why. His response probably seems both linear and logical to him. Do you love mommy? I don't even blink. For once, I'm prepared. I've been waiting for this over a year, and I can see the pitch law bin fat and juicy. Yes, I do, I lie. At first, he doesn't respond, yet I know he's skeptical. I wait. But you're doing divorce. Yes. Why? Well, divorce doesn't mean people don't love each other anymore. It means they shouldn't be married or shouldn't live together because they disagree on stuff. So they decide not to live together, but we both love you. Stuff? Another fair question, but I bullshit. Grown-up stuff. Ben sighs. But you love mommy now? Yes, I do. So we'll live together? No. Like I said, we figured it's better not to live together. This way, everybody can be happy. But you said you loved her. I do. I mean, of course, she's your mommy. So, of course, I'll always love her because she's your mommy. And she'll always love me because I'm your daddy. But he falters, regroups. She said she doesn't love you. I grin tightly, but don't respond. You only love her because she's mommy. You don't love her. Well, I used to love her a different way. What way? I shift under his weight. The way daddies love mommies. I mean, the way husbands love wives. Not anymore? Well, like I said, I love her because she's your... No, like before. Well, no, I don't love her that way anymore. I don't want to break the silence, but I wait, staring over his blonde hair at the digital face of the alarm clock near my sofa. 7.54. Where did it go? Where did what go? The other love. Huh? The other love. Not the mommy love. The other love. Where did it go? And once again, he's done it. I think I'm prepared. I won't be stumped. I'll be ready with one swing to knock this ball clear. Instead, I'm silent for way too long. Finally, I answer. I don't know where it went, buddy.